Hello everyone, I'm Barbara Alexander, president of IDSA, and thank you for joining me today for my first presidential address for the year. 2020 was undeniably a game changer for all of us. Almost every aspect of our personal and professional lives have been impacted in ways we could never before have imagined. Just as we thought we had COVID protocols and plans in place and things seemed to be settling out a bit, the current surge was upon us and we were also tasked with rolling out the COVID vaccine. But rolling out the vaccine in the context of states really struggling for manpower and resources and with very little guidance about how to approach the problem. So this ultimately led to at least 50 different ways and approaches for vaccine distribution on the local level. And then most recently, there have been questions arising regarding the vaccine supply and the immunization priority list. So all of these issues have come together and really contributed to the difficulty we've had in pinpointing and then addressing the bottlenecks, which are delaying getting the vaccine into people's arms. Throughout this busy and confusing time, I am incredibly proud of how our organization has pivoted to meet the needs of our members in their response to the pandemic at each step along the way. ID has really listened to its members and continues to monitor the COVID situation minute by minute and is responding on multiple levels and in real time. As examples and as a brief update, over the past few weeks, in order to guide the national conversation and decisions related to COVID vaccine, IDSA has released several important statements including a statement advising against altering the FDA-authorized dosage and schedule of vaccines as a means of vaccinating more people. There was another statement which called for the immediate release of all the remaining funds in the recent spending bill to state and local health departments in order to address the obstacles that are hindering vaccine rollout. And we've also released a statement supporting the new administration's plan, as outlined by President Biden on January 14th, which calls for a cross-sectoral approach to strengthening the pandemic response and requesting additional funding to address the pandemic that includes $20 billion earmarked for vaccine administration and uptake. Now, in addition to these statements, IDSA has also coordinated a media briefing on January 15th, which featured Dr. Julie Vashampayan, who's chair of our public health committee, and Dr. Andrew Pavia, who's a pediatric infectious diseases physician at the University of Utah. This media briefing was for the purpose of providing their perspectives, but also for answering questions from reporters from across the country regarding the issues that are hindering vaccination efforts. We have also kept our members informed by keeping our treatment and testing guidelines and the real-time learning network up to date and easily accessible and by coordinating and hosting in partnership with the CDC, the weekly Saturday clinician calls, which have been attended by thousands of registrants. I will also share that IDSA recently met with Dr. Fauci and other leaders from the NIH, and on four different occasions, the Biden-Harris transition team and their COVID-19 advisory board to provide our support, our guidance, and our frontline perspective regarding the COVID response, as well as the antimicrobial resistance issue. In collaboration with the Ag Council, we have continued the Mask Up America public health messaging campaign, and we're currently partnering with the COVID Collaborative to develop and promote a similar $50 million vaccine uptake campaign.
Throughout the pandemic, in order to drive evidence-based decision-making and to advocate for urgently needed resources, IDSA has stood up for science, we've worked to keep our members up to date and the public educated, and we have provided policymakers with expert guidance and evidence-based information. And this will continue. That said, the COVID-centered work will require a significant proportion of our organization's resources and bandwidth, which unfortunately are not limitless. So how will all of this work impact the other work of the organization? As you are aware, prior to the pandemic and based on our member input, the ID State Board had developed a five-year strategic plan, which included four strategic initiatives that remain very relevant. These initiatives include optimizing the development and dissemination of guidelines, advocating for the value of ID physicians uh, in order to increase professional fulfillment and compensation, facilitating the growth of the ID workforce, and driving national progress on antimicrobial resistance. I want to reassure you that we have not lost sight of these initiatives. While work on these issues will not move forward at the same pace we had anticipated prior to the pandemic, and all will clearly move forward under a COVID-colored lens, we will continue to work on these problems. Somewhat fortuitously, optimizing guideline development was our run initiative, and I think COVID has forced an entirely new definition of both run and rapid as it pertains to guideline development and dissemination. We invested early on in the pandemic in systems to facilitate rapid development of guidelines, and these systems are now in place for us to use moving forward. And in fact, you should have received a survey earlier this week asking your opinion regarding which guidelines we should prioritize for update or development over the next 18 to 24 months. The pandemic has also placed our profession in the national spotlight and our value has never been more publicly apparent than it is now. And we intend to build on this uh, as we advocate for the value of ID physicians and as we work to attract new trainees to the field. Throughout the year, I want to use this opportunity of this address as a way of keeping you informed on the progress we're making on the four strategic initiatives. But I've also decided to use this opportunity to familiarize you with the IDSA organizational infrastructure and to introduce you to members of IDSA, staff and member leaders who you rarely hear from directly, but who are working really hard on your behalf. As you learn more, I hope you will choose to become more involved in the work that we are all doing. So accordingly, and changing gears now just a bit, given that advocacy will be a key tool for advancing many of our priorities and because it's an easy way for you to become involved, I wanted to start today by introducing you to Amanda Jezik. Amanda is Senior Vice President of Public Policy and Governmental Relations at IDSA. Hi, Amanda, thanks for joining me. Hi, Dr. Alexander, great to be here. Good to have you. Okay, so for people who may be new to IDSA's advocacy work, can you describe how IDSA works with the federal government to help shape policy? I mean, internally, I know that within IDSA, we set our priorities and positions with input from our committees and actually sometimes from surveys of our membership. But how do we encourage the federal policymakers to actually listen and take action? So we hold regular meetings now virtually, of course, with congressional administration and federal agency staff 
And while IDSA staff hold a lot of these meetings, when we're able to have our members participate directly, they really bring an even greater local perspective and expertise. We found that the virtual format actually allows more IDSA members to participate in these meetings because they, no one has to take the time to travel to Washington, D.C., we also will send a lot of emails asking our members to um, take action by urging their senators and representatives to take a particular position on an IDSA priority. We call these action alerts and we set them up so that there is a pre-written IDSA message that people can modify if they choose. But it's very easy, very quick through this system to simply input your address um, and, and your local information and send these messages to your members of Congress. In fact, pretty soon we're going to be sending an email to IDSA members asking you to urge your senators and representatives to approve the funding that's going to be necessary to implement the new administration's COVID-19 response plan that you mentioned earlier. We also develop um, a lot of letters and statements and fact sheets that explain IDSA's positions and provide our expertise and we disseminate those to policymakers. And then finally, we really use the media a lot to drive policy progress by having our members talk directly to reporters or submit op-eds or letters to the editor. So, so we take time out to email our senators and representatives and sometimes even um, time to participate in meetings with them. But I know many of our members wonder if anyone in Congress actually reads these emails or if they, you know, if what we are saying has an impact. It's a great question, and I can understand why people might be skeptical. In regular surveys of congressional staff, the staffers repeatedly say that meetings with constituents, particularly constituents who have relevant expertise, those are really one of the top factors that impact the decisions of senators and representatives. So those meetings absolutely make a difference. Emails are not quite as impactful as meetings, but definitely still have an impact, especially if a member of Congress hears from a lot of people on the same issue. So with over 12,000 members, IDSA can really have a lot of power. I can give you a couple of really great examples. Several senators and representatives have chosen to support or even take the lead on legislation to advance IDSA priorities after hearing from IDSA members in their states. So Congressman Mike Doyle from Pennsylvania chose to introduce a very important bill to address AMR, which I know we'll talk about a little bit later, after one of our members, Dr. Neil Clancy, met with the congressman staff and really explained the importance of this issue. And if you look closely at uh, President Biden's COVID-19 rescue proposal and his vaccination plan, I think you'll see that they really align in many areas with the recommendations that IDSA conveyed to the Biden transition team. IDSA and the CDC present the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. Timely COVID-19 information curated by clinicians for clinicians. Be the first to know. Visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the latest COVID-19 resources for the frontline healthcare community. Go to COVID19LearningNetwork.org. Let's circle back to our four strategic initiatives and, and actually let's start with antimicrobial resistance. What federal proposals or legislation is IDSA currently promoting to address antimicrobial resistance? IDSA helped to develop a bill called the Pasteur Act, which was introduced last fall by bipartisan teams of lawmakers in the Senate and the House. 
And this legislation would dramatically change the way the US government pays for new antibiotics. Instead of paying per prescription, under Pasteur, the federal government would enter into contracts with antibiotic innovators and provide set payments for the most urgently needed new antibiotics. This financial model delinks antibiotic payments from their use, so it really aligns with good stewardship and it provides the predictable return on investment that's really needed to revitalize antibiotic R&D. The bill also creates a new grant program to support the implementation of antibiotic stewardship programs in hospitals, which we know from members is a really high priority. You know, antibiotic resistance and the challenges that are facing antibiotic development are really complicated. So this is a great example of an issue where lawmakers need IDSA members to explain these issues and explain the need for a bill like Pasteur. Um, we have a lot of compelling data that illustrate the need for action on AMR, but the stories that our members can tell about how this issue impacts real patients makes this issue stand out in the hearts and minds of policymakers. We've also informed the development of the U.S. National Action Plan for Combating Antibiotic-Resistant Bacteria, which includes a set of goals and activities for various federal agencies. So every year, we need to advocate for Congress to provide the funding to the NIH, to the CDC, and others to help advance um, these priorities, um, including stewardship, surveillance, infection prevention, and research. And then finally, IDSA leads a national coalition called the Stakeholder Forum on Antimicrobial Resistance, or SFAR, because we love our acronyms here in D.C. <laughs> and SFAR includes over 120 organizations that represent clinicians, scientists, public health, patients, industry, and academia. And we like to bring these groups together because they're strength in numbers. So this really strengthens our individual voice and demonstrates that a diverse set of key stakeholders are committed to policies addressing antimicrobial resistance. Yeah, I have to say that one of the one of the challenges that I've faced this year so far is understanding all the acronyms. <laughs> Another one of our strategic initiatives that's so important is communicating the value of the ID specialty and advocating for appropriate compensation for ID physicians. So how is our advocacy work impacting this initiative? So I would argue that every time we talk to policymakers about the response to the COVID pandemic, we are inherently demonstrating the value of ID specialists. As we make recommendations regarding vaccination, testing, treatments, community mitigation strategies, in all of those areas, the value of ID physicians is evident. We will continue the same kinds of advocacy activities to help ensure that leaders within the administration and Congress really appreciate and understand that the ID specialty is ideally trained and critical to coordinating the multifaceted and multidisciplinary teams that are required to address this and future pandemics. Right. And, and you know, the, the types of um, activities that you've described that, that we're involved in, um, I, I I term this uh, type of activity non-billable clinical work. And I think that once this type of non-billable clinical work is understood, it'll become more highly valued and once valued, more likely to be reimbursed. Let's talk for just a minute about the evaluation and management codes or what we refer to commonly as the E&M codes. These are used to reimburse the direct patient services that ID physicians provide and they've been undervalued for many years. So what is the status of the federal efforts on the issue of E&M coding? This year, Medicare updates to outpatient EM codes will take effect. 
Uh, budget neutrality rules in the Medicare physician fee schedule mean that reimbursement cuts to many physicians were expected this year, including a cut to ID physicians uh, that was expected to be about 4%. IDSA, in partnership with other cognitive specialty societies, advocated that Congress ensure that the EM updates take effect, but provide financial relief to prevent the expected payment cuts. And we were successful, so we will not be receiving a payment cut this year. Um, unfortunately, CMS is delaying for three years the use of a new add-on code for particularly complex outpatient care. IDSA is also continuing to educate policymakers about the complexity of care provided by ID physicians and the importance of accurately reimbursing for that care. As you know, most ID physician services billed to Medicare are inpatient, so we are now really focusing on advocacy and support of positive updates to inpatient EM codes. We will continue to um, need IDSA members to join us in talking to policymakers about the need to update those codes and to pay ID physicians fairly and the impact that these payment policies can have on patient access to care and on our ability to secure the next generation of ID physicians. Perfect lead-in to my next question. In addition to our work on compensation, we're trying to grow the next generation of ID physicians. And I know we've um, done some work specifically with the NIH and NIAID to grow the ID physician scientist workforce. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? At the end of 2019, in response to IDSA advocacy, NIAID held a workshop with IDSA and other relevant societies to discuss ways to improve support for the next generation of ID physician scientists. And last year, NIAID published the proceedings and recommendations in JID, and IDSA is now advocating for funding to help NIAID advance these efforts, including more mentorship opportunities, more K, T32, and F32 awards, greater support for the K to R transition, more support for researchers who are caregivers who tend to be disproportionately women, and greater focus on supporting researchers from underrepresented groups. I will say that as a caregiver to my 96-year-old mother and a 13-year-old son, I am keenly aware of the need for support for researchers who are caregivers. And so I, th I think this is an incredibly important and overlooked problem. So um, good effort there. So let's touch briefly on the legislation that's under consideration that would significantly impact the way diagnostic tests are regulated. I know that there is a bill um, that's going to impact the ability of um, clinical laboratories to develop certain tests. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, currently, as you know, FDA regulates commercial tests, but not tests developed by clinical laboratories, which are known as laboratory developed tests or LDTs, again, more acronyms. <laughs> so there's a new bill called the VALID Act, which would have all tests under FDA regulation, regardless of whether those tests are developed by a multinational company for sale around the world or developed by an academic clinical laboratory for use with hospitals in its community. I guess at first glance, the rationale for this bill is very reasonable. We know that some low quality laboratory developed tests have actually caused a lot of harm, significant patient harm, particularly in areas of medicine like oncology and genetics. But in infectious diseases, these laboratory developed tests are essential, especially for areas like transplant ID, where commercial tests are often not available for the pathogens that we're, we're trying to, to detect and diagnose. It seems like the amount of data that would now be required by the FDA in order to use these tests for patient cares 
will be almost impossible for a single laboratory or academic center to obtain. While at first look, the bill seems well-intentioned, it's also likely to stifle test innovation and development in clinical laboratories, and ultimately, our patients won't have access to many of the tests that we rely on currently. So what is IDSA doing about this? This is a really great example of a very complicated issue where the expertise of our members is so valuable to help inform um, members of Congress who, as you said, have good intentions, but don't necessarily have that on the ground expertise that we can provide to make sure that they, they don't do any unintended harm. So we've been sharing our concerns regularly with the bill sponsors, and they continue to work with us to modify the bill language to help ensure that tests are safe and appropriately regulated without stifling innovation and patient access to care. Um, that's an ongoing process. We're also educating other organizations whose memberships have a stake in this issue so that they can bring additional voices to Congress. And we really need a lot of our members, even those who may not be directly involved in developing tests and working in laboratories, to still explain to their members of Congress why these tests are so important to help care for patients. Thanks, Amanda. So we've touched on just a few of the specific but critically important areas where IDSA is currently actively advocating on behalf of its members. But to bring our conversation full circle, how can IDSA members actually get involved in our advocacy work? Well, I'm so glad you asked because I can't emphasize enough what a critical role our members play in our advocacy, helping to explain how federal policies and federal funding impact their local communities. Members of Congress, representatives and senators are much more likely to champion and support our policies when we can show a direct connection to the people that they represent. So for our members, I would ask when you get emails from IDSA that ask you to contact Congress, please take a moment or two to take action. We provide a pre-written email that you can personalize if you choose. And this year, we're very excited to be launching a new online advocacy tool that will make it easier than ever before to not only email members of Congress, but also take action on social media and share your stories about the um, illustrating the impact of our federal priorities on you and your patients and your communities. I would also ask that you encourage your colleagues to get involved. So when you receive IDSA emails, forward them to your colleagues and remind them how important this is because people are much more likely to take action when they get that request from someone that they know. We periodically ask for volunteers to participate in meetings, all now virtual, with congressional offices. So please sign up. We will look to renew opportunities for in-person meetings after the pandemic, opportunities for you to come to DC, um, as well as to meet with your representatives and senators in their home offices in their states and districts. Thank you so much, Amanda, for taking time out to talk with us today. I, I do know from personal experience that you and your team make it incredibly easy for member volunteers to be involved. You make sure that we're well informed going into these meetings, and it really doesn't take a lot of extra time or effort on our part to prepare. So um, thanks so much for uh, all that you're doing for us. Hopefully, members will start reaching out when you, when you send out your alerts and requests. I'll end today by just thanking you for again for joining me, but also to remind you that IDSA is only as strong as its members, and you are IDSA. 
So please get involved. When you receive an action alert from IDSA or a request from Amanda and her team to meet directly with your congressional leaders, please respond. Not only are you addressing the issue at hand, but also in the long term, we're concurrently demonstrating to policymakers the value of ID. Again, it is our voice together that is making us stronger.